the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Yes, indeed, and he's here to say hello. Welcome. Good to have you on board for another edition of Lifeline. We are here, of course, each Monday through Friday from 5 until 7 p.m., addressing issues that impact your life, your world, and your Christian walk. Jarrell's got eyes as big as saucers right now. Did I, did I miss a cue here? Or just surprised to see me show up? That's what I thought. <laughs> Well, I showed up, you showed up, so let's do some radio, shall we? Got a great program in store for you tonight. A little bit later on, we're going to talk about one of my favorite ministries. Has roots going all the way back to the early 1960s. Remember uh, Nikki Cruz, The Cross and the Switchblade, book written by um, David Wilkerson that depicts this uh, young Puerto Rican gang leader and his conversion to Christ. The ministry, of course, in the ensuing uh, my goodness, uh, 60 almost years now, has impacted thousands of lives, both nationally and globally. We'll talk a bit about the impact of the ministry of Teen Challenge here in the San Francisco Bay Area coming up later on in our first hour. I may, though, lead off, if you will give me permission, with a story that is a bit on the, well, a bit. It's significantly troubling. Remember Kermit Gosnell, the Philadelphia abortionist? He murdered three babies born alive during attempted abortion procedures. He also dealt prescription drugs out of his Women's Medical Society clinic. This is the guy that a couple of years ago was tried on 24 felony counts, 227 misdemeanors, and ultimately four first-degree murder charges, including three babies and one adult. Many of us at the time, when the story of his house of horrors and abortion made the headlines, pointed to what happens under the fallacy of so-called safe and sane abortions, or that as long as we make sure that abortion is legal, that we will make certain that clinics of this sort never, ever, ever have to operate, because after all, everything's above board. Mm -hmm. Well, apparently that seems to be a good model in the mind of one Democrat, Kathy Tram, from Virginia, she has authored the Repeal Act, which would wipe out all existing restrictions on abortions in the state of Virginia. The bill would apparently allow for a woman at full term in labor to have an abortion if the doctor deemed it, quote-unquote, necessary for her mental or physical health. So now we're back to Kermit Gosnell. Deliver them, and if it doesn't seem to be convenient... Let's go ahead and murder them. With more on this story, we're joined by Jennifer Hartline. Jennifer is a senior contributor to The Stream. She also frequently writes extensively for Catholic Online and Catholic Stand. Jennifer, thank you for taking time to be with us today. You know, I have been encouraged by many of the important strides that we've made in recent years toward protecting life 
across the country. But sadly, it looks as if if one Democrat in Virginia gets her way, they're about to undo a lot of those protections. What's going on? Well, first of all, let's let's start by saying that um, as of earlier this afternoon, um, live action was reporting that this bill, the Repeal Act in Virginia, seems to be tabled for now. That would be good news if that's true. Um, I'm assuming that's true that it's sort of been tabled. Um, they spoke to a Virginia representative who said that this bill is not going to make it out of subcommittee. And hopefully this bill will stay dead and will never see the light of day. Um, but we do need to stay on top of it and be extremely uh, aware and vigilant about what's going on in Virginia. But the, the, the thing is, uh, women in particular should be alarmed by this because, um, you know, I don't know how anyone in his right mind can see this as a victory for women as a sign of progress or a win for women when this bill and of course the horrible bills passed in new york and similar bills that are being passed in states all over the place they're doing away with basic protections like making sure the clinic is up to to snuff and equipment is up to snuff and safety standards they're doing away with the protection for women that that says a doctor a licensed doctor has to perform this abortion. Now they, they want to open this up to, you know, just about any medical person, I guess. I don't know, a tech, a nurse, who, anybody in scrubs, I guess, can do an abortion. And, and clinic safety standards no longer have to be met. And, I mean, how is lowering the standard of care in every measurable way, how is that a win for women in the first place? You know, before we even get to the gruesome barbarity of the abortion procedure itself, how can you even call this a win for women? Well, ironically, when you look at the degrees contained within this proposed bill, which hopefully, as you indicate, uh, perhaps is backburnered and will stay there in perpetuity, yeah. but the fact that it removes many of the protections, the fact that it would no longer require, for example, ultrasound, it would no longer require a 24-hour waiting period, would no longer require informed consent, wipes out many of the safety requirements. I look at this, and I have to agree with you, no matter where your stand is on abortion, uh, people can make their own choice, but I'm personally against it. Anybody ought to have one, two, should never take place under any set of circumstances. No matter where you fall on the continuum, how can anybody look at this and say, this is a good thing for women? I mean, in my mind, looking at not only the extension of the ability of a physician or anybody in scrubs, as you say, Jennifer, to perform an abortion that is not just late in the trimester, but at the end of the trimester, typically when they're delivered, up to that point, and remove all of these protections. What else could explain this but but this being crafted in the mind of an individual that is, what, bloodthirsty? I mean, that, that's, the, that's the only term that comes to my mind here. Otherwise, how in any way do we shape this into something that could be defined as beneficial to women at any level whatsoever? It, it, it's not. You, you can't. No, no reasonable, honest person can look at this and say that this is a good thing for women. Removing all these protections on, on the clinic, who's performing the procedure, um, it required ultrasound. You know, the, the, the ultrasound for anyone out there who's never had a baby. Let me just explain to you that when you're pregnant, one of the important things that ultrasound determines 
is the stage of your pregnancy, the size of the baby. You need a realistic picture of what's going on in the womb in order to treat that pregnant woman with good medical care. So the ultrasound is, is not some tool of emotional bribery. It is a medical necessity in providing a pregnant woman with appropriate medical care. Okay, so let's, let's remember that. And let's also remember that this, this lie, we're being fed a really big lie right now with regard to this law and, and these late-term abortions, and that is, they want to say, no, we, we need to get rid of all these restrictions because what if it's necessary to save the woman's life? You don't want the law standing in the way if, you know, if it's necessary to save a woman's life. And they're throwing this phrase around, and everyone needs to realize that that's an absolute lie. It is a bunch of baloney. There is never, never, never any medical necessity to kill the baby before delivery. Well, and one of the reasons why there has been a steadfast um, effort to make sure that no sort of reporting requirements are ever instituted at either the state or the federal level as to the background or the motivation behind why the abortion is simply that fact, because they can continue, those on the, the, the pro-abortion side of the incontinuum, they can continue to promulgate this lie because there's no empirical evidence to back it up. But the reality is, and you're bang on, Jennifer, uh, rare if ever is the occasion when an abortion must be performed to save the life of a mother. I'm not saying that it has never happened, that there's not a complication in a pregnancy where a doctor has to make a different choice, where a physician comes in and says, you know, it's going to be one or the other, but both of you will not survive. But those cases are so few and far between that to suggest that there'd be no reporting whatsoever and then to promote this idea of end of tri- third trimester abortions uh, on the basis of, of protecting the life of a mother is is nothing more than, as you say, nonsense. I mean, it, it, it basically is a, uh, um, a bait-and-switch con- uh, uh, play. No, it's, it's a lie. And the important the, the thing is here, when you're talking about the second and third trimester of pregnancy, if a true emergent situation arises for a woman at that point and her life is truly in danger, realize a couple of things. First, a late-term abortion takes days to accomplish. This is not something that you can do in a half hour or an hour. And if a woman is truly in an emergent situation, she doesn't have days to wait for intervention, for care, right? But a late-term abortion doesn't happen quickly. Secondly, it is a lie that you have to kill the baby first in order to save mom's life. If the pregnancy needs to be terminated in order to save mom, then you terminate the pregnancy by delivering the baby. Yeah, I was going to say, you know, induce labor or have a C-section. That's the way it's normally done. Exactly. You deliver the baby, but there's no medical need to kill the baby in order to save mom's life. That's a lie. And any reputable doctor will tell you that. And OBGYNs and neonatologists and NICU nurses and pediatricians and specialists all over are coming forward to say there is no such thing. It is never, never, never 
medically necessary to kill the baby in order to save mom. It and, just doesn't happen. And at the end of the day, what's shocking about this, as there was a hue and cry, I think there was a lot of embarrassment, certainly within the abortion, um, providing community, Planned Parenthood at all, and, and, and nationally. There was shock and horror as the revelations of the activities that took place inside of Kermit Gosnell's uh, so-called Women's Medical Society Clinic came forward. Um, and, and a lot of it was not just the number of lives that had been uh, taken uh, intentionally and uh, literally on a first-degree murder basis, but the number of lives that had been put at risk based on um, lack of proper, proper medical procedures, lack of trained personnel, unsanitary environment, outdated, outmoded equipment, on and on the list went. And everybody at the time, no matter where, where you, again, came down on the continuum of abortion, said, this must never happen again. So what do we do? In Virginia, they have a Democrat representative there that says, oh, we need to make it legal for this to happen again and again and again. As Jennifer Hartline points out, this has temporarily been tabled. We hope that it will be permanent tabling of anything of this sort that is nothing more than a risk to um, everyone involved here. Certainly a, a risk to the baby 100% of the time, uh, you know, from, from a fatality standpoint, and a significant health risk to the woman as well. And I remind those in the audience that may be um, in favor or look the other way when it comes to so-called uh, the pro-choice angle of this question. And we heard this argument even made during uh, the recent pro-life rally in Washington, D.C. last week. Um, Brian Johnston reported on this. Some of the more vocal protesters saying, we need to make sure that abortion is always safe and always legal so that women's rights can be protected. Last time I checked, one out of every two babies were women, females. What about their rights? Do rights not pass down to them as well? And what about the right to life that is emboldened and embedded inside of our very Constitution? Interesting questions that we as a society continue to grapple with. Sounds like some temporary good news, at least now out of Virginia. We'll keep you posted as things continue to develop on the so-called Repeal Act. Jennifer Hartline, contributor to The Stream. More information available on her good work. Go online to thestream.org. That's thestream.org. 518 from KFAX. Got a look at traffic for you right now. And uh, waiting in the wings to give us a look at your Wednesday ride to here and there is Michael Bennett. Michael, good afternoon to you. Welcome to the program. What's going on out there? And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Welcome back to the conversation. 522 here on your Wednesday edition of Lifeline. And as we continue on, a turning corner into a ministry that some of you may have been familiar with or heard about around the periphery. Maybe you know the story of um, one famous gentleman who was ministered to and reached for Christ through uh, what barely existed in those days as Teen Challenge Ministries in uh, in Brooklyn, New York. And that, of course, uh, Nikki Cruz, whose uh, life was depicted inside of not only his book, Run Baby Run, but a book written by the founder of Teen Challenge Ministries, David Wilkerson, The Cross and the Switchblade. And uh, that, of course, depicting the story of this uh, gang member, a gang leader, actually, in Brooklyn, um, who um, didn't like the evangelical preacher from Philadelphia who showed up in town and kept telling him about Jesus. 
And uh, eventually, of course, uh, Nicky surrendered to the good news of the gospel and has gone on to become a global evangelist himself. In the ensuing years, since 1960, Teen Challenge Ministries, of course, has ministered to tens of hundreds of thousands of young men and women, not only across the United States, in more than 250 centers across 48 states, but now globally in some 95 countries. To learn more about the ministry, we're joined today in studio by Scott Nissel. Scott is the director of East Bay Challenge, um, located here, of course, in Oakland, the Oakland Men's Center. And we're also joined in studio by Alan Durfelt. Alan is the intake coordinator on behalf of East Bay Teen Challenge. Guys, great to have both of you with us. Thank, Thank you for having us. Um, let me start, Scott, first with you. You've been involved with the ministry for seven, seven and a half years. What first brought you to Teen Challenge Ministries? What is about this ministry that resonated with your heart? Well, I first came to the ministry in 2010 because um, I needed help. I needed help with an addiction that has just overtaken my life from just a reckless lifestyle. Um, a good friend of mine who's a pastor up in Sacramento led me there. Um, just kind of, do you want a secular program or faith-based? And I had no problem with faith-based, but I really got there just looking to get help and get clean and sober and kind of come to the realization that a year-long program might be what I needed to step away from everything. What I got out of it was so much more than just getting clean and sober. It was a real character change and developing a relationship with the Lord that truly turned my life around and focused my life on what's important, and that was honestly living for Jesus and living out the path that he laid out for me, not what I was laying out for me. So for you, this sort of went from being a program to deal with the challenges that you were facing in your own life Mm -hmm. to once having encountered the life-changing power of the gospel— Mm-hmm. and done a, an about-face, so to a speak. A complete about-face. You, you, you came for help, and then you ended up staying and said, I believe in it so much, I think I want to be involved in this full-time. Yeah, absolutely. I graduated the program from Oakland in 2011, um, and I actually went to Sacramento and actually kind of followed my passion for a little bit, which was high school football and sports is one of my passions in life. So I was on staff at the Capital Christian High School uh, football program as well as on staff at the church. Um, but it really wasn't quite enough, and I kind of needed something more, so I came back to Teen Challenge in 2013, and went to the San Jose Center and worked in the development office there, started out there, um, became on staff in 2014, and after doing an internship, and then fast forward a few years, a few years later, they brought me back to Oakland, which was kind of coming full circle um, in 2017 to take over the director position, which is just truly beyond what I could have ever expected. What was going on in your life that led you to the drug abuse and eventually made you feel as if you were backed into a corner that you needed you needed not just some help, but you needed a program it was, to confront your demons, so It to started speak. out, I think, with just general wanting the party to continue once I graduated high school. Mm-hmm. And it's just because I, func- I would say I was a functioning addict for many years to the point where people I surrounded myself with didn't know or couldn't, couldn't see that I suffered from an addiction. But when they kind of got serious with life, I wanted the party to continue. So for you, it went from, hey, let's have a party to almost a way of life. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And then it was a double life of sorts, where I was maintaining the job, and then but the people I lived that party lifestyle with weren't the people I was associating with on a personal level. So I really kind of came disconnected from maintaining friendships and building relationships that were healthy in my life. So everything that was healthy and good, I was cast off to the side. And if you don't, it's like if you don't water a plant, you know, the friendship can't grow. So in the end, it just became like the addiction and everything, the lifestyle just became a big snowball and. Um, grew bigger and bigger and bigger until finally it exploded to where I couldn't hold the job. I couldn't, I couldn't hold relationships. I eliminated all trust with my family and friends and basically was left 
all burnt, all bridges were burnt. It was so it becomes sort ground. of a slippery slope. Exactly. And, and suddenly, before you know it, it's all consuming. Absolutely. It was exactly it. It consumed everything to the point where I was working in the Central Coast and was given an option where you need to get help and you have three days to figure it out. And I was, and that was it. I couldn't call, couldn't go home to where I grew up. I could not. There was really no other option to call. I was. This was it. I had to make a decision. And when Teen Challenge was an option, that's that's the door I walked through. When you first came through the door, any misgivings? Was there any concern about, oh, I don't know, the religious angle here? Who knows? The religious thing didn't bother me, but I was a little, I would say, skeptical about that being everything. But then once I grew to, like, I grew up in a Christian home, so I had the, I had the foundation. I just didn't have the, the continued knowledge that you need to kind of develop that relationship. The, pr- the practical side of it. Exactly. Yeah. And so I believe when I came through, I mean, one, having to give up nicotine was, I think, you know, the drugs was one thing, but don't take away my cigarettes. But you know what? At the end of the day, that's probably the best thing that ever did that ever did for me. Um, Added 20 years to your life, too, probably. I hope so. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, it was – I really had no misgivings because I really wanted that help. I really wanted to get clean and sober, and I really wanted to change. So I was willing to do whatever I had to do. As you went through the Teen Challenge program, did you discover – Scott, that the bigger issue, perhaps, the bigger demon, so to speak, wasn't the attraction to drugs or even the escapism, but that it was maybe covering up other things going on within your heart, within your own life that you hadn't really come to terms with, had, had not really Absolutely. faced and said, okay, here's, was... here's, here's, here's what really is going on. This is, this is not the problem. Drugs isn't the problem. Drugs are the symptom. Exactly. Kicking drugs was actually the easiest part. Within, within a month, I would say... There really was no more dependency physically or mentally on the drugs, but then it was a matter of what do you do to replace that time? So it became down. I really kind of discovered that it was my idle time and, you know, idle hands, idle time is the devil's mm-hmm. playground. And so it really kind of, okay, what do I do to compensate for it? And that was really what Teen Challenge really brought the through the curriculum was just through the – the most important thing I learned from it was the character qualities and some of the group, and some of the group projects we worked on because it really – establish some character things that force you to really look deep inside as what type of person are you when no one's looking and that's the person i wanted to be and that's a scary part for a lot of guys isn't it i mean the the drugs oftentimes can be the way to sort of anesthetize the pain and also to sort of blur the image that we see in the mirror looking back at us mm-hmm. because we don't like what we see no the drugs can kind of help us forget or or as i say blur what we see and coming to terms with who we really are, facing that, and then discovering, oh, wait, everything that I blame myself for, everything that I don't like in myself, every aspect of what I see in the mirror that I distaste, disdain has been forgiven by the blood of Christ. That's exactly it. And it really helped. Uh, that's, that's that's literally life-changing. I mean, that, 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 be, that becomes sort of the big aha moment, doesn't it? It was. It was exactly the big aha moment, and for me, it was also knowing that this was a process. This wasn't just a quick Band-Aid fix. This mm. wasn't just, you know, wave the magic wand and happily you're cured. This was really trusting the process, and for me, it was important um, that the outcome be more important, be greater than the process of going through Teen Challenge. So in order for that outcome to be great, I had to put 100% of my heart into the process of the program. And Totally results-oriented in that sense, then. Very much so, and to the point where... You know, my plan when I came to Teen Challenge wasn't to stay with Teen Challenge. It was I had actually a plan of what I wanted to do afterwards. Um, 
and where my life was going to go. And, and that's healthy. We should mention because there are cases where, and it's not Teen Challenge, it's any program where you get comfortable in sort of the, the, uh, the cocoon of being in the program, going to the Bible studies, being surrounded by fellow believers, having a controlled environment where people can't show up with drugs and not a party every night, there's curfews and all of that. So that can be a, a safer environment where you can kind of control the demon because you don't have access. Mm-hmm. But suddenly now when it's, okay, you've gone through the program, time to go back out into the rest of the world where all those temptations line up in the queue... And then being able to, on your own, say no. That's really where the rubber meets the road, isn't it? Absolutely. And it's a, it, to me, I always tell people it's about staying connected. That's why I really believe in, in staying connected. We offer a six-month internship when people complete the program. And, um, you know, it, I, had, I came back and did it when I came back um, in 2013. That's why, you know, to do an internship. Because it really involves staying connected. Um, and honestly, kind of living that same lifestyle and following the regiment of the program and kind of obviously you're not going to do everything the same, but the getting up early, um, making clean in your bed, um, taking care of yourself, daily devotions, getting in the word every day. And the stuff the adults do. <laughs> Absolutely, exactly. Yeah. Adults yeah. And, and functioning working yeah. adults, and it truly just creates a balance of, you know, living a normal life and also living for the Lord and finding out. It helps you help me have God guide my steps along the way, mm-hmm. and it's it's. Um, and clearly, what's happened to you also motivated you to say, I want to keep not only close to this, yes. but I want to be able to share this experience and help empower others so that they perhaps can experience for themselves the changes that you yourself have seen. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And it was, when I went to work at the development office, it really wasn't, I was, wasn't what I was doing at the time. I was more involved in kind of working at the core of our ministry and helping generate fundraising opportunities, you know, because that's what we need to keep the program sure. running. But, keep um, the lights on. But I stayed, I stayed connected with, um, with the Oakland Center and just with helping the men out, um, you know, and working at San Jose is where I, I, met, I got, met my wife, um, got married, have a beautiful three-year-old son and a 16-year-old stepdaughter that have changed my whole world and put a perspective on it. But I remember praying to God, I need some, some male fellowship in my life. And, you know, he, gives, he blesses you tenfold. He didn't just give me, a, you know, some blessed friends, which obviously Alan's one of them and other people, but... He gave me a whole program of, of guys to, to look over and watch over, and it's taken some time to kind of get my, my feet wet and get, get into it, but it's that in itself has just been truly not only, I believe, healthy in what I can bring to the ministry in terms of a leadership aspect, but healthy for me personally. Well, and it really is the discipleship principle at play here because someone discipled and mentored you mm-hmm. and helped you get your life on track, address your demons, and experience what it means to be a new creature in Christ Jesus. Yes. And then having perfected, so to speak, that walk, turn around and then replicate it in others. I mean, it's the discipleship principle from Amen. square one, day one, book of Acts. 100%. And that's what we follow. And that's what the big thing we tell people is we're not a recovery or rehab program. We're a discipleship program. Now, if we had TV cameras in here, they would conclude that uh, that Alan is your yes man because Alan, you've been shaking your head through a lot of this. <laughs> he's, a lot he's of this more is, than that. It, a lot of this has to resonate with you. Then, I mean, a lot of this must echo your own life experience. And while you've been involved with the ministry at at a professional level for a couple of years now, you you had your own challenges dealing with drugs. Tell us about that. Yes, sir. So, uh, just first and foremost, just want to say thank you uh, for allowing us to come on and to tell our testimonies and. 
Um, it was through the power of radio um, that I found out about Teen Challenge. Really? Yeah, so there was a commercial on K-Love. My dad heard about I it. I thought he'd mentioned us. K-Facts. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and it was because of the radio. God used the radio for me to come in to the program and, um, you know, find the freedom that I needed. So you had been struggling. Dad heard about Teen Challenge on the radio, picked up the phone and said, what, Alan, there's a place you got to be? Yes, sir. Exactly that. And um, so I just stepped out in faith. And um, somewhat when, when my parent, when my dad had got remarried, um, the woman that he married was a um, really active member of the church, um, really Bible-believing Christian, and um, ended up leading my dad back to the Lord. And Had you been raised in a religious home then? Prior? Somewhat. I remember going to a Baptist church when I was young, a four-square church when I was young. Um, oh, both ends of the continuum, huh? Yeah, so, you know... Um, <laughs> But so drugs affected my family. Drugs and alcohol affected my family in a big way, and I was exposed to it at a very young age, uh, my mother being an alcoholic. Mm-hmm. Um, she ended up losing her life about seven years ago um, to an OD, um, a day before my son was born. Wow. And so it was, it was a pretty trying time in my life, and um, I just dove deeper into drugs. Um, about a year after she passed away is when I found out about Teen Challenge. Yeah, yeah. People hear that and go, well, wait a minute now. Watching your own mother go down that deep, dark path and not come back, some would say, boy, that would be a sobering moment for me. That would be my wake-up call. But for you, you dove even deeper into the drug use. Was that to kill the pain? What was the— Kill the pain. I had very poor Um, self-image. You know, I tried to live up to this expectation of being the cool party guy and— you know, everything is all right. There's a lot of that going on around. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's actually, yeah, you know, um, so I came in the doors of Teen Challenge in Oakland um, in 2013. Um, ended up going to the family program in San Jose, um, and that's where me and Scott met. Um, he was doing his program um, there, and so we ended up meeting, and, you know, it was because of the brothers in the program and like that I made it through, you know. Jesus carried me through. And Were you scared, Alan, coming into all of this? I mean, you had a little bit of familiarity with religious experiences as a child, but you characterize much of your young life exposed to alcohol abuse, eventually claiming your mother's life, your own experiences with drugs— to suddenly say, okay, I got I got to confront some serious stuff here, yeah. and and your list is even deeper because it's not only dealing with your own demons, but then trying to figure out how do you get answers from someone that's no longer here to give answers when you look at what your own mother went through. Yeah. How scary was that? I mean, it was it was pretty pretty difficult, pretty pretty scary time. I bet. Um, but but. In, in the big picture, you know, it did bring my dad and me a lot closer. Um, and I had, I had my son, too. You know, my son, I, ha- I knew I had to make a decision whether I was going to, you know, continue down the path and wind up losing him for good or, you know, if I'm going to— or, or him losing you. Or him losing me, you know. I, wow, now that's got to be sobering to think yeah. about the potentiality of two generations in a row here, one that's already happened and the other one that's significantly at risk. It yep. weighed on you? It did, yeah. You know, and I didn't want my son to have to go through that either. Um, and, I, and I truly believe, like, I really believe, man, that God broke that generational curse. You know, I've had lots of people in my family pass away from that. And, you know, I've gotten a lot of revelation this last few years, like, that time is over. Like, 
from now on is life in my family. You know, um, it's, it's walking with Jesus. It's glorifying him. And I'm, I'm really praying that through the, these radio interviews that whoever's out there struggling, you know, whoever is in the place that I was at, you know, here's this testimony and, and they make the decision to come into the program. And, you know, their entire family is affected by it. Because when, when you're in an addiction, it just doesn't affect that person. It affects the people around him, and sometimes even more than the person that's in the addiction. And, and that's true in the same when you, when you step across the line and, and you get sober and you start, you start walking with Christ, it affects the people around you in a positive way as well. So. Now, uh, Scott, you sort of characterize yourself, at least early on, as sort of being a, a functional addict. Mm-hmm. And, and there's, there's a, I get what you're saying, but there's also a degree of, of that being a tremendous misnomer because, if anything, yeah, you, you, you're maybe more of an actor than anything else. You're really not functioning in the truest sense of the word. What about for yourself, Scott? You characterized yourself, at least for a season, as, as a functional addict? Yeah, for a season. Um, it quickly blew up in my face. You know, Again, that, down, that downhill edge. slide. Yeah, yeah exactly. You know, um, but yeah, I did quickly blow up. Um, I was able to go to work and maintain a job. And, um, you know, once I realized the place I was at, um, wanted to reach out and, you know, just things just bubbling up. I, I knew I had to reach out and do something. I think this is significant because so often there is a characterization that people have of the drug addict who is the derelict down on the street. Uh, wearing paper shoes and dirty clothes with a raggedy old, um, uh, you know, blanket to protect themselves at night, and they're addicted to crack or or meth, um, and kind of looking at this as the worst-case scenario. But as you're both suggesting, you can also be from working world, hold down a job, maybe even from a respectable family, although it may be families that have problems, as they all do, and be able to function and yet still have this addiction, still have this demon sitting on your shoulder. Mm-hmm. That addiction doesn't discriminate. It does not discriminate. The devil doesn't discriminate. He's looking to kill, steal, and destroy. Were there times for either of you during your addictive behavior uh, where you said, I'm okay, I'm not like the guy that I just oh, painted the picture of? If I, was, if I had a drug problem, I'd be on the streets. Absolutely. I, don't yeah. I said, I'm not like him. I'm not, I'm not yeah. one of them. I'm not or one I'm of those. never going to go that far. No. I know how to control it. No. I know I'm, where my limits are. Yep. And then I'm the first thing one of the staff members at Oakland told me was like three days into the program, I says, just think about it. The best you've ever done in life and the best this person's ever done in life has got you both here to this point. You know, it was, very, it was a very mm. sobering statement because it's like, wow, I came from a great home, son of a fire chief. You know, my mom was a homemaker, a sister extremely successful. I had great grades in high school, had a college football scholarship to a small, small school and lived like the all-American life. But at the same time, the same guy that was my, my bunkie who was, you know, had broken home, grew up on the streets, grew up in gangs, um, was a junkie on the street corners in, in Oakland. Him and I are both in the same program at the same time searching for the same thing, recovery. And that was a very sobering statement. Like, it humbled me big time, big time. And I guess pain can be pain no matter what the source is. Your situation, losing mom, that's pretty painful experience for anyone at any age, for that matter. Or coming from, you know, the all-American families who say white picket fence, three yep. and a half kids, the dog, the car, vacation, scholarship. Yep. And yet still the capacity of the drugs to influence your life and then to convince you that it's all okay or maybe to use it to make it feel okay. Mm-hmm 
can be as just as debilitating as the worst-case scenario of the, the derelict, the druggie on the street who is missing teeth and, and is, you know, two minutes away from death because of the meth addiction. Yep. And I guess perhaps the, the message here is that it comes in various shapes and sizes, and no matter what the, what the tipping point might have been, parties in your case— Maybe a little bit of anesthetizing a lot of pain in yours. As you say, it leads to the same result. Yep. You find yourself in the same spot, facing the same kind of demons in the same place. And now where do we go from here? I guess the real message here, too, is in terms of providing hope for people, that there are people eavesdropping on this conversation tonight that can relate to either or maybe parts of both of your stories and maybe two had been doing the same self-talk. Well, that's not me. I'm never going to be that bad. Mm-hmm. I know how to cut it off. I don't start drinking until Thursday night or whatever the excuse might be. A lot of these things are excuses. And I guess at the end of the day, a lot of the excuses are also things that the enemy helps put into our minds in order to serve as a block to prevent us from really facing the truth. And, of course, ultimately, this is not about what your drug of choice is, because you can be just as lost, making millions of dollars every year, showing up to church, paying your taxes, writing checks to uh, nonprofit organizations, and have no relationship with Jesus Christ, and still ultimately face the exact same eternal consequences. So the real story here then becomes, no matter where you're at in this process, no matter how good you might think you are, or how bad things might be, or how hard you're trying to convince yourself that it's not as bad as maybe you sometimes suspect that it is, uh, that we're all sinners in need of a Savior. The emphasis of Teen Challenge, let's talk a bit about that. Um, I mentioned earlier uh, roots going back to David Wilkerson. Mm-hmm. Uh, who, as I recall, came down from from Philadelphia into uh, New York City and eventually started this ministry and started reaching out to rough kids on the streets. Mm-hmm. And now it's grown into a multinational organization that it's touched the lives of hundreds of thousands down the streets. Millions. The millions. Give us a bit of a glimpse for people that um, are, are totally unfamiliar with exactly what Teen Challenge does. Uh, l- let's start with you. Scott, tell us a bit about what this program is all about. Well, the program is all about, and I always go back to what my, my predecessor in Oakland, uh, Pastor Jay, said, was when David Wilkerson walked into that courtroom, um, to paraphrase what he said, was these kids don't need um, incarceration, they need restoration. Mm. And that is just something that really, because sometimes these guys come in there with just terrible hurts, habits, and hang-ups that take them away from the potential in their life where they just really need to get centered and find Jesus at the center of that. So what Teen Challenge does is, um, we, we've been in the Bay Area since 1967 in San Francisco, and then we've moved to Oakland and San Jose and all over the, the Bay Area. Um, we just allow people to come in with, from all sorts of backgrounds with any type of, any type of struggle to come in and, and just honestly, you need help, we're here to help you. Um, we don't, you know, there's a screening process, which Alan goes through um, as my intake coordinator to kind of really bring the right person in, but they got to just be committed to the, to, the, to the process of it's a one-year-long program. Um, it's not for everybody, but it's for everyone that really wants to get help and really needs to step away from the world and just kind of come in. And they say one year of teen challenge is like going to five, equivalent to going to like five years of church mm. because we have, you know, chapels, you know, twice a day, you know, every morning, um, Bible studies, reading, church attendance, minimum three times a week. And, and it's, not, it's not to throw 
you know, church down their throat, but it's just to get that central centralization of Jesus at the, at the core of your daily life. You know, listen to the words of the Bible, listen to the scriptures that you read every day. Well, and it really is indicative also of a focus not just on a head change, but a heart change. The heart change. And yeah. I mean, so when, when behavior is motivated by the heart, because either the heart is broken or looking to anesthetize pain, uh, you can modify behavior for a season, and after a while, the power of that heart comes in. I mean, you know, a- a- ask any guy who's who's dated and married a woman that maybe was, you know, crazy about mm-hmm. thinking with his heart because, you know, he can't, he can't make the disconnect. So the ability to say, we need to focus on where the real long-term lasting change will come from, we can preach at you stories to get you to change the way you think, at least temporarily. But at the end of the day, if we don't change your heart... Mm-hmm. then all of this is going to be for naught. And that, and that, I think, demonstrates the reason why the rate of recidivism by so many secular programs is Absolutely. as high as it is. And I think a very simple way to put it is when a lot of people come to Teen Challenge, I know when I came to Teen Challenge, you're at a point where you feel like there's no hope. The word hope has always resonated with me as a very important aspect. And um, one of the Teen Challenge statements is, you know, we strive to put hope within reach. And I believe... You really find that in Teen Challenge, where you, you get to a point when it's like there's actually hope for me, and it comes in all sorts of it comes in all sorts of ways. One, you look at the older brothers that come that are over there when I came in, and and you see that they've been changed, and the, the graduates that come back to the program to pour into the students, and you see that change, and that's the change. You know, when I was a student, I wanted, and I know that's what any student wants to see. They want to make sure that what they're doing is worth it, and we have such a great track record of people not only have gone through the program, not just like by names on the paper actually physically come back and physically pour their hearts out into these into these men. Um, and now that takes us back to that whole discipleship perspective we spoke of earlier. And that's and that's exactly it, is they just, you know, they become fishers of men. They become disciples of the Lord and come back to the program that saved them. And they so it really comes full circle to where they remember when they were there. And the guys that are in the program now that are going through it, I have 100% confidence that all these guys will be back at the center a year from now to pour into more new guys. Um and again, it just comes back to, to putting hope, hope, put hope within the reach of the addict and finding God's plan for their life. Well, and when so much of your life has been surrounded by that sense of, of despair and hopelessness, mm-hmm. and suddenly you encounter hope and you find that it's real and lasting and life-changing, um, I mean, what else can stoke the flames? What else can motivate you to want to share that with others than to say, hey, I've experienced this. Thank God somebody stopped along my path to say, mm-hmm. let me tell you that there is an answer, there's a different path, there's another way that's not dark at the end, but light in the end, that will give you hope. Who wouldn't want, having tasted of that, want to then share that experience with others? Yeah, and that's what's infectious. Is when you see that when you've, you can come in there beaten and broken and you see that, you see that change in people, and then that's what you want. Um, and that's why Alan's so great as my intake coordinator, because he's the first, he's the face of our program for the new students. Um, he talks to them first and they come in and they see the hope in him mm-hmm. and in his story. Yeah. Well, they can, they can come in and say, but you don't know, you don't understand. And you just have some, yeah, I do. Yeah, mm-hmm. I do. Yeah, I was where you were now and just wait. I show him a picture of what I used to look like. Really? <laughs> <laughs> That's scary. That makes huh? a believer out of him. <laughs> <laughs> we're going to take a time out come back to more of our conversation. We've got Alan Durford with us today. He is the intake coordinator, East Bay Teen Challenge, along with the current director of East Bay Teen Challenge, Scott Nessel. We'll take a time out come back with more as Lifeline continues. 5.50 on the clock. You've got to get caught up in some traffic here. Let's do it right quick. Michael Bennett in the KFAX Traffic Center. Tell me what's going on out there, buddy. 
three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.